Before we dig into what God has to say, let's pray. Lord, some of us have known you a long time, some of us just a short while, and some of us are still journeying to knowing you. We pray today that through Jesus and by your Spirit, you would bring us all into deeper knowledge of you and love for you. Amen. Well, this week, my son Nathaniel, who's at university, asked me how I understand the word ideographic. Ideographic. And to be honest, I felt rather idiotic because not only did I not know what the word meant, I don't think I'd ever even heard the word. And so, rather than show him how ignorant I was, I went to Google and uh, looked up the word. And ideographic is, quote, an approach to knowledge. It is knowing based on examining individual cases. Approach to knowledge, knowing based on individual cases. And this week I've been thinking about knowing God. In the passage that's been set for us, we meet the, the church of Philippi, and they desire to know God more. And that's always a good thing. And then we listen to Paul's response to their search for knowing after God. And he seeks to show them the right way and the wrong way to knowing more of God. Kenneth Graham, in his wonderful philosophical text, Wind in the Willows, writes this, the clever men at Oxford knows all that there is to be known, but they, none of them, know one half as much as intelligent Mr. Toad. And in our passage today, we're meeting intelligent Mr. Toad, better known as the Apostle Paul. And he knows about God, and he tenderly directs the church into a greater, deeper, more fuller knowledge an experience of God, the God who is love. Well, I got two main points this morning. Firstly, the Philippian church are longing to know more of God. And the question for us is, are we? Are you? The Philippians had embraced Paul's gospel, and they were eagerly, faithfully, following Jesus. They were an exemplary church. Unlike so many of Paul's letters written to churches, that Paul doesn't have to address too many serious issues that are going on. They were going for God, and they were living a good life with him. In fact, Paul can say that they're shining like stars in a dark firmament, and they were giving sacrificially to Paul's mission, and they were joining in praying and supporting and caring for him. They tasted that the Lord is good, and they wanted more where that came from. And that was a commendable thing. It was a beautiful thing. The religious impulse to know more of God is always right. Why? Because God made us for himself. He made us to know him. And our hearts are restless till they find their rest in him. The problem was that the Philippian church 
having started well, have gone astray. They followed a kind of flaky tangent and are finding themselves in a religious and spiritual cul-de-sac. We can infer that a group of Jewish zealots had arrived and were pushing this idea on the Philippian church that in order to know God better, in order to relate to him in a proper manner, they needed to do something more. If you want to know him more, you've got to do more. And they were encouraging a kind of performance-based religion. They were emphasizing an obedience to the Mosaic law. They were encouraging that the Philippian church, made up of Gentiles, non-Jews, were circumcised, and that they observed special days and special duties and special diets. Your performance, your obedience, your compliance will get you nearer to God. That was their line. That's what they were pushing on the Philippians. And when Paul, who is in jail for preaching the gospel, when he hears about this, quite honestly, he goes ballistic. We've got 13 letters from Paul, but none of them convey the kind of annoyance and anger that is on display here. It's the sharpest of all his letters at this point. In verse 2, three times he says, beware, beware, beware. And we've often said that in Hebrew idiom, if something is repeated three times in close proximity, it's a kind of Hebraism to emphasize completeness, holy, 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 and so on. It's kind of saying something definitively and fully. And he says, beware, beware, beware. Red light, red light, red light. And then he says what they're to beware. He says, beware the dogs. This was a Semitic slur. He was calling these Judaizers dogs. And then he says, beware the masochists, those who want to circumcise you. And beware those who are the workers of evil. He's not looking for a point of contact with these religious folks. He's not trying to sit down and find a point that they can all agree on. He's coming out strong. He is like an enraged bear who senses that wolves are coming in after her cubs. The great Swiss theologian once wrote, you don't dialogue with a snake, you strike it. And that's how Paul feels. He's in jail, but this church in Philippi that he founded, the people that he loved, that he brought to God, are being led astray. They rightly desire to know more of God, but they're wrongly looking in the wrong place and going up some cul-de-sac. The thing is, God is not gained by your religious effort. That's what Paul is at pains to convey. God is not gained by what you do, only by what he does. You cannot, through effort, uh, build up merit and credit with God. The Christian gospel is so revolutionary, so counter-religious in that sense. You bring nothing but you. That's all you bring. You come empty-handed. And here is this church being told, okay, you've accepted the gospel, you've received Jesus, but you can do better than that. 
go and get religious. And Paul says, beware, 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 these dogs, these masochists, these evil workers. You see, the Christian life is a gift of grace to faith. It's a gift from God's generosity and benevolence, and all we bring is our yes. All we bring is our empty hands, and we say, I'll have some of that, thank you very much. And Paul says in Romans, it's from faith to faith. In other words, we come with faith, and we don't then go and get religious and go into law. We come with faith, and we keep coming with faith. Paul goes on in our reading. If you've got your Bibles, do turn to it, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says in verse 3, listen, it's us, the Christians, who've received Jesus, who are the true circumcision, whose hearts have been put right with God. Only God can get you right with God. Only God can bring you to God. And all that you bring to the table is you and your yes to him. God sends the invite, God opens the door, and God gives us the wedding kit. He does it all. He does it all. And it starts there and it finishes there. And Paul is livid because people are coming in and they're piling on rules and duties and responsibilities and burdens that, that uh, they don't need because Jesus has already gifted them salvation. And then Paul gets personal, verse 4. He says, look, if anyone's got a reason to put their confidence in being religious and obeying the law, and if anyone's got credentials that they think could curry favor with God, it's me, says Paul. Listen to this, verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. These are like special forces religious, the most scrupulous of all the Orthodox Jews. Verse 6, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, according to the oral traditions, I was spotless. I was as good as it got when it came to getting yourself ready for God. And then he says in the words of Shania Twain, well, he doesn't, but I, and if he was around, he'd have sung it. He says, that don't impress me much. And that don't impress God at all. Paul realizes all these things that he once perceived as giving him a kind of advantage religiously with God were not. His spiritual CV did nothing to bring him closer to God. And yet he can see that people are putting all of that stuff as requirements on the church that he founded. In fact, he goes on and says, well, all these things that I once thought gave me a step up, made me special, were to my gain, he says, now are loss. In fact, it's interesting, you know what I just said about repeating things three times, beware, beware, beware. He then says here, it was a loss, a loss, a loss. Beware, 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 this religious stuff is a loss, a loss, a loss. Why? Because it is powerless to get you to God. St. John of the Cross said, to know God 
comes by a, a way of a lot of unknowing. And Paul had to do a lot of unknowing in order to know God through Jesus Christ. I like what former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said. He said, Lent is not about giving up chocolates, but about giving up our wrong pictures of God. And Paul had a wrong picture of God when he was called Saul, and he thought he could get to God by building up a hill of his good works and effort, who he was and where he came from. And he realized when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, it's not worth a hill of beans, that stuff. It's not about giving up Lent. It's about giving, uh, not giving up chocolate for Lent. It's about giving up our wrong pictures of God as somehow we come to him based on what we do. In verse 8, Paul ramps it up again. All he once held dear and built his life upon, he says, is scubalon. That word is translated as refuge or waste. It, it really means dung. He says, all of that stuff is dung compared with knowing Christ, gaining him, being found in him, having a righteousness not of my own, he says, that comes through my effort and religious duty, obeying the law, but one that comes through faith. All I do is look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, lean on Jesus, give myself to Jesus, and Jesus gives me his righteousness. Knowing God being right with him, that's what righteousness means, comes as a gift by faith. It's a gift, and it's by faith. And he says, just bring yourself. You ever get invited to a dinner party or a party, and you say, what shall I bring? No one ever says, bring a bottle of wine, bring some flowers, bring some chocolates, um, and also make sure it's a good quality bottle of wine, and maybe you can also bring the first course. <laughs> Generally, if you get an invite, the person inviting you has done all the work. Listen, he invites us, and he's done all the work. He's done all the prep, and he lays the table, and he says, just bring yourself. Martin Luther, in the early 16th century, was a young monk who wanted to know God. And he thought he could know God and be right with God based on his rules and regulations and laws and disciplines and duties. Do you know he fasted for a third of the year? Every third day he didn't eat. Every third week he went without. He whipped himself and beated himself as if God was impressed by him hitting himself. He confessed sins that he'd never even thought of, let alone committed he went to Rome and he climbed up the steps of the Santa Scala on his knees as if God cares. One day he said, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was me. Only it didn't get him to heaven. He just stayed in hell. His life was a torment. And then one day sat on the toilet, he had a revelation. And God showed him that he was justified that he was acquitted of sins, that he was made right with God based on faith. That's all he brought. What shall I bring? Just bring yourself and put your trust in Jesus. No wonder Paul was so annoyed. This church that he loved, that he'd nurtured, that he'd invested in, were being led astray. For all the right reasons, they were being led down the wrong path. 
And Paul is calling them back. Listen, it starts with faith and ends with faith. It's a gift from first to last. Your righteousness, your rightness with God is not based on your effort. And anything that you then bring by way of discipline and devotion and duty is worship. It's worship. There's a place for it. But never mistake your worship as being a work that curries favor with God. It doesn't work that way. And then secondly, just briefly, the Apostle Paul himself, he longed for more of God. Paul knows Jesus better than anyone. He'd introduced thousands to Jesus. He'd planted churches all over Asia Minor and went up into Europe. He was entrusted by God with writing a third of the New Testament. And, but there was never a sense of him plateauing and sitting back and saying, look, Look what I know and look what I've achieved. He was always pressing in for more of God. And so in verse 10 of our chapter, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made like him in death, if only somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted to know more of Jesus. And that's a sign of spirituality. That's a sign of life. That is a grace that we should want more because there's always more to receive. And Paul knew that. And one of the consistent marks of Paul in his letters is praying for and encouraging the churches to receive more. But it's interesting, you know, this more, even though he's writing Scripture, he's not, he's not saying the more is found in the letters. The letters that he writes our Holy Scripture is encouraging us to the reality behind the proposition, which is not knowing and memorizing a Bible verse, but meeting with the God behind the proposition. Paul says, I want to know Him. I want to know Him. This is not book knowledge. Although God is revealed in the book, God meets us in the book. It's not the book that is God. This is not head knowledge, but heart knowledge. This is union communion. This is intimacy. That's what Paul's talking about here. And note that the knowing is not sort of esoteric and abstract and mystical. It's not a special knowledge for an initiated few like the 6,000 Pharisees, not obscure meanings in obscure texts. It's the gospel. It's the main and the plain. That's where the more is to be found. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Where are you going to get to know Christ? In the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings at the cross. It's in the resurrection and the cross, in understanding these things, in entering into these things, that we know more of Jesus, we know more of God. We don't graduate onto some other secret, super mystical knowledge. It's in the cross and the resurrection. It's the primal verities of our faith. That's where he's to be found, not in what we do and not in secret and special stuff. Come back to the cross. Come back to the resurrection. That's, you know, we're in Lent at the moment, and we're preparing the ground of our hearts to come to the cross and the resurrection where God comes to us. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, probably the greatest theological mind in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul and to date. 
You know, he was the only person in the history of the church who was given an, an honorary degree, DA, the Doctor of Angels, because his insights were so sublime. He wrote numerous books of philosophy and theology, in fact, encyclopedic, and his works still today shape thinking, especially in the Western world. And um, he wrote numerous books. He was working on a set of encyclopedias on the faith called Summa Theologica. But one day as he was celebrating the Eucharist, as he was celebrating communion, as he was reflecting upon the death of Jesus for us and the shedding of his blood, he had an experience. He had a vision and a revelation and an understanding of the cross that stopped him writing. And his secretary called Brother Reginald pressed him. They had someone called Reginald in the 13th century. Oh, Reggie, he said, when are you going to finish the books? And Aquinas said, the end of my labors has come, and all that I have written appears to me to be a straw compared to the things that have been revealed to me about Jesus, the power of the resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Later, at the end of his life, when Again, he was meditating on the cross. He heard the Lord say, Thomas, what do you want? And Thomas said, nothing but you. Nothing but you. This is Paul. This is where Paul is at. I just want you. He's in jail. He's suffering. He doesn't know whether he's going to get out or he's going to go to heaven through being beheaded. But he says, I just want you. Let me give one more illustration as we come to the a conclusion. Professor Alistair McGrath, well known to many of you, is a great modern theologian, written over 50 books, especially on the interface of science and religion. He converted in Northern Ireland at the age of 16 to Christianity, and when he came up to Oxford, he said he was just aware that he, there was, his, his faith seemed sterile and, and just clinical and all cerebral. He says this, I knew I had to break from the cold rationalism of my early faith, but how? He says, cycling one day to Whittam Woods, Whittam Woods, I found a place to sit on a hillock from which I could see Oxford's famous dreaming spires. And having asked God to help me sort myself out, I opened my Bible and began to read Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. That's where we are today. And he said, I contemplated Paul's declaration that I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. And as I read and reread those words, I began to realize the true nature of my problem. Up to that point, he said, I thought spiritual knowledge was about gaining information, and I read commentaries and theologies, but he said that didn't improve the quality of my faith. It didn't help me really know God. I was like someone who had read books about France but never visited it, who'd read about falling in love but had never experienced it. And what spoke most powerfully to me that morning was Paul's distinction between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. 
Many readers, he says, no doubt will find this blindingly obvious, but everyone has to discover it sometime. They do. It's not, about, it's not about knowing about. It's about knowing him. And here in Philippians, it's one of his last letters, but there's a few years to go yet before he's executed. Here in Philippians, he says that he wants to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And in his very last letter in 2 Timothy, Just before he's executed, he says, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. The Philippians wanted to know Christ, but were looking in the wrong place, an upper cul-de-sac. Paul wanted to know Christ and went further up and further in as he meditated on the cross and received the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrection. What about you? Let me finish with this last sentence or two. God wants you to know him. The first sermon I ever preached to students in this church in 1998, my text was from Jeremiah 9, and God says this, if anyone boasts, let them boast in this, that they know and understand me. God wants us to boast, but not in our works, not in our religious efforts, not in what we bring to the table, but he wants us to boast in knowing him. And he wants to boast that we know him.